So gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of that song we've just sung, that you are the God over all things. We thank you that you've chosen to speak to us, and we pray now that we would have ears to hear all that you have to teach us as we seek to live our lives for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And if you've got your Bible there, please do open it up to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 again, uh, and have your finger in there, page 1200. And 19. Uh, the main thing I want to do today, the main thing I think God has laid upon our hearts together as a church, gathered deliberately this morning, no one is missing who should have been here, no one is here extra in God's providence. The main thing he wants to teach us today is for all of us in all our relationships to rediscover a beautiful, powerful, releasing life-enriching, courageous calling from God. Whether we are men or women, whether we're retired or just embarking on life, whether in our 20s or in our 80s, whether in positions of, of leadership or have relatively little responsibility, whether we are married or aren't married, whoever we are, to rediscover the life-enriching, spirit-empowered, Jesus-exalting, servant-hearted <laughs> approach to life which is the Bible's definition of the word submission. That's the main thing I want us to try and see. Something of the stunning portrait the Bible paints for every single one of us that is found in a true understanding, a real understanding of the Bible's idea behind submission and how it characterises every single relationship, every single relationship that we should have if we're trusting in Jesus. Now, some of us aren't Christians this morning. I hope that you'll get a glimpse of this, this, this image, like the glimpse of that fine dress in the shop window, which makes you rush through the door of trusting Jesus to find out what else is in there. So if you're not a Christian, that's what I'm hoping. And if you are a Christian, I hope that you will see this clothing this call to submission in all relationships, man or woman, and realise its beauty, realise how it's been corrupted, the word itself in our, our contemporary understanding, and be delighted to wear it proudly, proudly, as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. See, if you look at the passage, chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, 1 to 7 is a magnificent portrait of the magnitude of marriage, that kaleidoscope display of God's value and worth. Marriage needs nurturing, needs help. Here's Peter teaching on marriage. And one to six, because in, in this context, the women are getting things right more than the men. So he mostly writes to the women who are more on the right track than the men in this. We'll look at men in a couple of weeks' time. My tone will be a bit different. <laughs> but this portrait of a woman generally and a wife specifically is stunning. In verses 1 to 2, this woman lives a life that is deeply impactful on the people she loves the most. That her approach to life, her attitude, behaviour, character, use of money, is so stunningly Christ-like that people are one to Jesus without her uttering a word. In verse 4, she is described as beautiful in a way that can never fade. 
so attractive that as a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old, a 60-year-old, a 70-year-old, a 80-year-old, a 90-year-old, people catch their breath when they see the glint of Christ in her eyes. In verse 5, she's described as having a hope in God. Such an anchored reality in the sovereignty of God that no circumstance externally, no anxiety internally can knock her off course to what Christ has called her to. Her hope is not in her marriage. Her hope is not in her husband. Her hope is not in hoping to be married. Her hope is not in her career. Her hope is not in her children turning out to be quite nice and parading them around her. Her hope is not in how big the bank balance is. Her hope is not in how pretty she might look. Her hope is where? In God. What a woman. What a woman. And the last sentence... Verse 6, she does not give way to fear. She does not give way to fear. Fear for her children's future. Fear for her financial stability. Fear for the health of her marriage. Fear the anxieties that rise up inside of her. Fear because she's unsure of her identity now as she transitions through those different stages of life. Who was I? Who am I? She does not give in to that fear. She is fearless. I mean, friends, what a woman. What a woman. I don't have daughters, so I'm forced to pray this for my future daughters-in-law. If you have sons, I hope you pray it for your sons, possibly future <coughs> wives. What a woman, eh? And yet, I suspect, for many of us, it's the word submit which first leapt out of us, wasn't it? That's in there. It's there in sentence one. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. It's there in verse five with the wonderful example of Sarah, who submitted herself to her own wife and obeyed him. Uh, but did you notice it's also in verse seven? Did you see that? Husbands, in the same way. It's remarkable, isn't it, that not many of us see that that actually husbands in the same way are called to submit to their wives. This is a mutual submission thing, both husband and wife, but we feel uncomfortable with that, don't we? Do we? I, I do. Yeah? Now, I think there is a form of submission we need to wholeheartedly reject. There is a definition of this word submit that I want to be as clear as I possibly can be at the front this morning that we totally, totally reject. Submission that is forced, demanded, degrading, restrictive and ugly. We wholeheartedly reject and refuse that kind of submission. And we fight for others' freedom from it. Submission is never something, as we'll see in a minute, in the Bible that can be taken or demanded or commanded of from someone. It is a precious gift which someone willingly offers to another because they have proved themselves trustworthy enough to handle that precious gift. So when we see this form, this, this form of submission that is gross and unpleasant, when we see it in the global sex trade, when we see it in abused zero-hour contracts, when we see it in bullying at the school, when we see it in abusive parenting, when we see it in corrupt marriages, even if they wear the label Christian, what a misuse of that great word Christian, then we do everything to reject that kind of submission. Have I made myself clear? That is how the world defines submit. 
Something we have to, we are forced to yield against our will. I'm made to do this when I don't really want to. And it's limiting and it's restrictive and it's ugly and it's abusive. Can I be any clearer? That is not, that is not what the Bible means when it uses the word submit. That is a corrupt usurper which has come in and stolen away the beauty of the biblical vision. Because in the Bible, this idea of submission in all relationships is of such beauty, we are called to courageously pursue it. It is something which is voluntary and considered and intelligent, not something that is forced or demanded from us. It is something which is offered as a precious gift, not taken roughshod from us. It is something which is powerful and effective to bring change into the world and the people around us, not something which is degrading to us. It is something which is releasing and enabling, not restrictive and disabling. It is something which is deeply attractive and desirable, not something which is ugly and gross. The world's definition of submit and the Bible's meaning of the word could not be further apart. So what I want to do is give you four examples of this remarkable vision. So you see, you see where it comes from. That Jesus submits to the Father voluntarily, willingly, purposely, satisfyingly. That Christians submit to God voluntarily, joyfully. And it's releasing and invigorating for us because we submit to God. That Jesus submits to us and then finally, Christians are called to submit to each other. Let's look at the first. Jesus submits to the Father. I wonder if you just turn to John chapter 6, verse 38. That's page 1070. We won't look at lots of cross-references, but do come with me. Because I want to rescue this idea of submission from the corruption it's received and try and persuade you, men and women, all of us, to pursue it as not just right, but better. Page 1070, John 6, sentence 38. John 6, sentence 38. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Do you see that? I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but in submission and obedience Voluntary offered by Jesus, the Father never forced it, Jesus chose it to do his will. Let's look at the most striking case study of Jesus doing that. Turn with me to Matthew, a few more pages to the left. Matthew chapter 26, page 997. Page 997. Matthew chapter 26. And verse 39. Jesus knows he's about to be crucified, a most horrendous death. He's praying with his disciples who are tired and fall asleep and abandon him. Verse 39, going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. No one says it's easy, but it's voluntary. And Jesus submits. He calls us to follow him. 
Secondly, uh, what about Christians submitting to God? Well, we could go to copious different cross-references. In the New Testament, repeatedly, repeatedly, we're told to submit ourselves to God. Now think about what that means. Does God force us to follow him? No, no. We make a voluntary choice, a rational, considered voluntary choice, and our submission to God our Father is liberating, releasing, satisfying, powerful, effective, isn't it? Positive. If you wanted a cross-reference for that to take home and look at, you can look at James uh, chapter 4, verse 7. What about the third one? The Bible actually tells us Jesus submits himself to us. To us. Mark 10, 45, we're told Jesus speaking, he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for all. Do you see that? ready to serve, to submit to us. And then finally, in mimicking all those relationships, finally, we as Christians are called in all our relationships to submit. So would you turn back to 1 Peter? Last time, we're going to stay in 1 Peter now. It's on page um, uh, 1218, 1218. Because in 1 Peter where we are, page 1218, in 1 Peter where we are, uh, Peter is in the middle of a bunch of different relationships, all of which are called to mimic Jesus. And in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 21, he gives us a generic summary. Do you see it there? He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. So Jesus says, willing to submit, voluntarily bend his resources to serve other people for their benefit. Greatly satisfying for Jesus. Huge purpose and legacy. And then he calls us to do that. And then there's a string of relationships. Look at chapter 2, sentence 30. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Then secondly, verse 18. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your master. Then we have marriage, chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Then we have the life of the church, verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded. Do the same thing. Submit to one another. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate. Be humble. And then in chapter 5, verse 1 to 3, the leaders of the church are called to submit to the members of the church and serve them and benefit them. And then chapter 5, uh, sentence 5, we, talk, we, we read that members of church are submit to their elders and leaders in the same way, verse 5 of chapter 5, in the same way as Jesus submitted, you now submit to each other. Do you see that? So remarkably, in the Bible, this word submission is voluntary, it's liberating, it's releasing, it's powerful, it's effective, it's what Jesus modelled for us in how he related to the Father, and he calls us to follow him in all sorts of relationships. Men, women, old, young, whatever it might be. Now let's get to the nitty-gritty of marriage. So if that last 11 minutes or whatever it was, 15 minutes, uh, you'll be going, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And you're nudging your hubby in the ribs or whatever it might be. Yeah. Let's think about the nitty-gritty of marriage for the last 15 minutes or so, 10 minutes or so. What does this generic vision for Christians in all our relationships, look like specifically for wives. So maybe you're a wife, a wife-to-be. Uh, maybe 
you're supporting those who are married. Maybe you have daughters, goddaughters, nieces. On the list goes, it's going to be relevant for all of us in some way, shape or form. What does it look like for wives? And the lessons here will explode into all our relationships, but I'm now going to be specific to those to, to being a wife. Okay. I want to tell you six things it's not from the passage, and then four fruits that a wife who intelligently, courageously pursues this vision of, of submission, four fruits she should expect to see ripen in those around her and in herself. Okay, six things it's not, and then four fruits that this approach to submission, this idea, this biblical, powerful, voluntary choice to submit, worked out in conversation with your husband, who can never demand it of you, you can only offer it to him, he can never ask for it, but you can offer it, what fruits will it ripen this for? So first, the six things it does not mean. Wives, it does not mean agreeing with your husband with everything your husband says or thinks. Okay? Does not mean... <laughs> seeing some faces there going, no brainer, Alex. <laughs> it does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says or thinks. In those first couple of sentences here, it's, it's clear that the wife wonderfully has come to trust Jesus, but the husband hasn't. The husband here is described as not believing the word. Might mean he literally has rejected all of Jesus, or he's, he's kind of following Jesus, but in a very lackluster way. And the spiritual high-octane fuel is in the woman's tank. And, and chug, 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 here comes uh, the trotter's van somewhere behind, you know, the three-wheel Robin Reliant, you know, way, way back in the distance. And there's a Formula One wife kind of storming ahead. So it may mean that one's a Christian, one's not. It may mean that, that the wife is just really driving forward and the husband's chunking behind um, and in, in the distance. The point, being, the point being, Peter clearly doesn't envisage the wife surrendering what she thinks about Jesus and understands about Jesus in submission to her husband's faulty and flawed understanding, does it? So it does not mean, as a wife, agree with everything your husband says or thinks. It doesn't. There's a way to disagree which is still respectful, right and correct. Secondly, it does not mean switching your brain or your will off at the altar. It does not mean you suddenly surrender your responsibility to think for yourself and to choose for yourself. The way those couple of sentences read right there at the beginning, they read like both these, this couple, they both heard the word of God. Do you see that? They heard about Jesus. The woman chose to trust Jesus. The man, it says here, verse 1, did not believe the word. So Peter doesn't envisage for a moment that somehow the woman always goes to her husband, what do I think about this? What should I do about this? No, she's an independent entity, fully responsible for her own decision making. And at times, is charged with saying to chug along husband back there, fuck up your ideas, fella. Okay? Enough of this. Pull it together. That is great submission, actually. Because it's pulling that person towards Jesus. You might not choose to do it. I'm not quoting Hannah. <laughs> Three, it does not mean giving up on seeing him changed. Okay? Clearly this is a context, a very difficult and hard context which some of us are living. 
where there is a, a huge spiritual inequality, perhaps even one believing, one not believing in the marriage. Really difficult. I'm so conscious of that. Really difficult. But submission does not mean you just shrug your shoulders and kind of say, well, he's made his choice. I'll never see him changed. In fact, ironically, this biblical vision of submission is the strategy to see him changed, isn't it? It says here, doesn't it? Um, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of your wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, uh, I had a husband once say to me, I, I verbally slapped him, I almost physically slapped him actually, this was in my heady 20s day. Um, he said to me, he said, well, does that mean I can say to my wife, stop talking? Without words. The Bible says, without words, wife. You can imagine my response to him. I'm sure Jesus would have been the same. <laughs> it doesn't literally mean a marriage absent of words. I mean, it doesn't. And it doesn't literally mean a, a marriage absence of, of words about Jesus. I think what it means is, don't give your husband a sermon every breakfast time. Don't try and subtly leave the next book about Jesus you know, on his table for him to accidentally stumble uh, across. You know, don't, don't nag him, nag, nag, don't, 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 don't. Speak when he talks about Jesus, speaks when he asks about Jesus, but live in such a way as you, as you submit this biblical vision of submission in the marriage that he starts to say, tell me about Jesus. Because I see your reverence, I see your purity. Later on in the passage, there's this little phrase of gentle and quiet spirit. Did you see that in verse 4? Some of us rail against that, don't we? Some of us ladies go, gentle and quiet. Well, it's not, it's not about personality. It's not about subduing your personality. It's not about not talking. It's not about being meek and mild in the background. It's none of those. The original word is used to describe Jesus as well when we talk about Jesus being meek. The original word was used to describe a harness that was placed on a shire horse-sized beast to direct its enormous power in a certain direction. And a wife who is following Jesus says, I have enormous power. He has called me to direct it, not to explode like some six-year-old before fireworks who just gets so excited and it goes everywhere, a real mess, but to hone it down a little bit like, and here's Isaac, our eight-year-old's illustration. He's so good at this when I talk to him. He said, Daddy, is that like a magnifying glass? I said, what do you mean? He said, because the sun shines everywhere, doesn't it? It's just everywhere. But when you get a magnifying glass, it hones that power and that energy into a, ray, into a laser beam that can cut through anything. It's exactly what the word means when it says quiet and revere. It means you have this enormous power. Jesus calls you to channel and focus it into a laser beam, a laser beam that can cut through anything. Do you see that? So it does not mean giving up on seeing your husband change. In fact, it's a strategy. The greatest weapon in Jesus' arsenal to see unbelieving husbands changed is their wife fulfilling true biblical vision of submission. Fourth, it does not mean he's more important than Jesus. Does not mean he's more important than Jesus. Look at verse 6. Would you just look down at verse 6? Let me unpick another verse that might make us feel uncomfortable and correct it. It says, like Sarah, she's a wonderful matriarch from the Old Testament, our case study of living for Jesus as a wife and a woman, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. And we may jar against that. Lord? That's not what? But do you notice it's in lowercase? Do you notice it's in lowercase? Do you see that? It's just a term of respect. In fact, the original readers would have gone, what? The other way around. They would have said, that's too small a word for a husband. Husbands need to be elevated. Peter says, no, put him in his place. You know, just don't call him a plonker. I mean, it's, all, it's almost, 
Unless he is, then do. But that's it's almost. Lord is just a totally different word when you see Lord with capital letters. That's the word for God. This is just, you know, be nice to each other in public at least. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. It's got that kind of language to it. Does that make sense? Just be respectful. He is not more important than Jesus. And can I be really clear? Because obviously, whether you're, you've got a partner, whether you're married, whether you long to be married, whether you've got a, a boyfriend, obviously, the man in your life is tangibly much closer. Obviously. Because of that tangible closeness, there is a risk you don't want to rupture that by putting Jesus first. He's not more important than Jesus, actually. He's not. Fifth, it does not mean that she is not responsible or strong. In fact, quite the opposite. Peter here is calling a strong wife to be stronger for her weak husband. He is addressing the wife first, which was radically countercultural, not the husband first, because it is the wife who is the strong one here. It is the wife who is following Jesus. It is the wife who has it all together. The husband gets a verbal slap around the face. She's called to be strong because she is strong. It does not come from fear, sixth, finally. This form of submission does not come from fear. At the very end of verse six again, do not give way to fear. I just want to be really, really clear. If you are in any kind of relationship where your response to another person, whether it's marriage, a partner, in the workplace, a friend, in a sports team, in the schoolroom, wherever it is, if you are in a relationship where your response to the other person is driven because of fear, that is deeply unbiblical. Fear of the wage increase you might not get, fear of the fist that might hit your face. Submission, the Bible's vision, is never driven by fear of any form or any kind. So very tentatively now, for you ladies who might be sitting here, or some of you gentlemen who might be sitting here, who are in an abusive relationship, would you please, please just take the step to talk to me after the service? And in an appropriate but clear way, I'll do everything I can to remove you from that dangerous place. You are not called to remain in a place where your response is driven by fear. This wife, this woman, she does not give way to fear. Okay? Let me give you the four fruits. In this passage, so wives, wives to be, those cultivating wives to be, there are four fruits ripened by an intelligent and courageous pursuit of a biblical vision of submission in your marriage. You need to work out what it looks like for you as a couple. Just to be clear, it's got nothing to do with who takes the bins out, nothing to do with who earns the most money, nothing to do with who does the primary childcare. It's got nothing to do with those cultural things. You need to work it out as a couple. Two Christian couples will do this very differently to one another and both be right. But there are four fruits ripened by a wife's intelligent and courageous pursuit of the biblical vision of submission. Number one, your influence for Christ will be enormous amongst those you love. You will see those you love become Christians. Look at verse one and two, let me read it again. 
Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husband, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. Jesus' greatest weapon in his arsenal for saving a husband is the wife embracing this biblical vision of submission and living a life of such beauty, such stunningness, the husband cannot turn away from it. It, it, it just catches his eye and he cannot see Jesus. He cannot not look at Jesus being lived out by his wife. But it might not be your husband. It might be your child. It might be your parent. It might be those girls that you've been friends with since you were in your 20s. Biblical vision of submission truly understand and courageously pursued, one of the fruits it ripens is people believing in Jesus. Second fruit, it will make you attractive in ways that cannot fade, wrinkle or sag. Verse 3 and 4. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, that focused energy, which is of great worth in God's sight. So just like in our culture, in the culture Peter, Peter was writing to, there was an infatuation with looking sexy, looking fashionable, looking young, looking pretty, looking made up. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with looking nice. Absolutely nothing wrong with looking nice. I go into Marks and Spencers. Did you know this? When I go shopping for myself, I go into Marks and Spencers. You know, they have the mannequins already dressed. I just go in, I say, I want that in my size. That's all I do. And it, it takes about, sometimes, I've timed it, less than 120 seconds. Like, for a whole year. I mean, I'm talking like, those three mannequins, please, my size, thank you. Yeah, you should try it, Kevin. Kevin should. <laughs> but I'm writing thinking. I mean, I, I, I'm conscious that I'm a man, and I'm conscious that I'm predominantly raising boys, and only have influence into girls' lives. Um, so I may be wrong here. But every lady I speak to, of every age, says that this infatuation with how you look is massively, massively demanding on them. Am I right? I think it is, isn't it? Peter here writes into exactly the same culture and says, look, nothing wrong with looking nice, but your attention should be on that inner beauty that cannot fade or wrinkle or disappear. We all know it when we see it, don't we? We all know it when we see it, in the glint of someone's eye, in the touch of their hand on your arm, in the tenderness of their prayers, in their knowledge about your life from one conversation six months ago. You know they are beautiful because of what Jesus has done inside. That's the second fruit that will ripen. You won't need to worry about fading, wrinkling, or sagging anymore. <laughs> third, third fruit is a deep-seated hope in God in the face of all circumstances. All circumstances. This is a woman whose hope and certainty in the sovereignty of God cannot be rocked. Look at verses 5 to 6. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. So Sarah is held up as one who hoped in God, even though she was way past child-rearing age, bearing age. Hoped in God. 
Certain that in all circumstances, God would see her through. Maybe not in the way she wanted. Sarah actually clearly didn't really want a child in the way Abraham did, if you read the story. But trusting in God's plans and purposes of what would happen. She doesn't hope in her husband. She doesn't hope in her husband's faith or lack of. She doesn't hope in a desire to have a husband. She doesn't have her hope in her career or her status or her bank balance. Her hope is in God. Her hope is not in her looks. Isn't it interesting? One flows from the other. Her hope is not in her looks. I speak to many ladies. I normally pass them on to wiser counsel than I can offer. But who get to a certain stage of life and, and, and perhaps they don't meet that false placard of what beauty might look like and it knocks them for six have you been there there is something about the biblical vision of submission to your husband which evens out that and allows you to be certain in the face of all circumstances hope in god and the fourth and final fruit is fearlessness in the face of what frightens you verse six you are her daughters daughters of sarah if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Fearless women. Fearless women in what might frighten you. Frightened because you've lost your security. The women in 1 Peter had lost all their security. They were refugees with no home or money. All their security had gone. They were fearless. Fearless for their children. Fearless for her husband. Fearless for Christ. Loss of identity. Who am I now in this strange place? What's this next stage of my life going to be like? The kids are getting older. I don't know what comes next. Fearless. Fearless in the face of those rising anxieties and uncertainties. Fearless for Christ because of this biblical vision of submission. Fearless in the face of concern for loved ones not saved. Fearless in the face of concern for loved ones not saved. And fearless, fearless in the face of concerns about not being pretty anymore, or fashionable anymore, or young anymore. The biblical vision of a woman is remarkable. And in God's economy, it is intrinsically linked, like it is for all of us, in courageously and intelligently understanding the true biblical definition of submission, first modelled by Jesus. A voluntary precious gift Jesus gave to the Father and calls us to do the same. And it's intrinsically linked to those wonderful fruits. Seeing your husband saved and your children saved and your loved ones saved. Seeing a deep-seated hope in God that nothing, nothing can change. Of an unfailing beauty which means you take people's breath away for every decade of your life. Because they see what's in here. And a fearlessness in the face of what might frighten you. Let me pray for us and then we're going to sing another song. Father God, you raise women who are mighty and marvellous and wonderful. You, Father God, by your spirit, you raise women who are fearless and hope-filled and resolute and unflinching. Father God, you raise women who become wives, who demand of their husband 
a greater and fuller allegiance to Christ. You raise women who are stronger. Father God, I pray that we would be a church filled filled with women like this portrait. Filled with women like this portrait. So that most of us men realise we have been jogging on the spot when it comes to following Jesus. We look at these women. We look at these women and say what they have I need and I want. So I pray for the women gathered here. I thank you for each and every one of them. And I pray, Lord, that you would pour your spirit into their lives. We pray for our daughters. Pour your spirit into their lives. Raise these women to hope in you with unfading beauty, with the profoundest of influence for Christ in the lives of those around them. And fearless, unflinching, in the face of anxieties which rise in them and enemies which attack them. Fearless for their children, fearless for their friends, fearless for Christ. Women like the women who lived when 1 Peter wrote this letter. Women who are daughters of Sarah. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.